I manage Jules from the First Nations Tax Commission. Hi, I'm Greg, I'm Greg Richard, uh, Chief Economist with Fiscal Realities Economists. When last we spoke, we were talking about some of the gaps that have uh, prevented First Nations from really unlocking their economic potential, both the land and the people. Uh, and we went through a whole list of those. And then we kind of, and there's a new, another gap that we want to talk about today. And this is a gap that pertains to everybody. And I'm going to call it the resource investment gap. And what it means is, is in, uh, whether people know it or not, a um, number of people have been very, very alarmed about this. It's a CD Howe has estimated that Canada lost lost $100 billion in resource investment in, in the last two years. Another group estimated $200 billion over the last five years. Uh, the basic statistic is, is that in resource investment in Canada went from $125 billion in 2014 to $75 billion in 2018. Uh, this has enormous implications for the country. Um, both uh, provincial and federal governments and people are really quite dependent on this. Um, a loss of investment can translate into several times that amount of lost income. And we really need this lost income now that as a result of the COVID um, shutdown. Um, what's not as clear as is where where, you know, is what is the nature of the trade-off if there is one between resource development and and uh, the economic benefits that it can generate? And where do First Nations stand on resource development? And is there anything they can do, you know, to either improve the nature of the trade-off or improve the uh, or improve or make up some of this lost investment? So Manny is here today to discuss some of this, and uh, I don't know if we should just kick it off. Maybe I can ask a, a quick question. So. Um, Manny, do you do what would you say? I think there's a perception out there that most First Nations oppose resource development just on principle. They would would you agree with that statement? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons to oppose and support uh, resource development. I think one of the fundamental questions, though, is you know how can First Nations better benefit from uh, resource explo- exploitation within either our traditional or uh, treaty territories. And I think that would uh, go a long ways to facilitate more resource development in the country. And one of the ways we're proposing uh, to do that is that there be a resource charge or a resource uh, tax on uh, resource developments within uh, traditional territories or uh, treaty territories. to do that, of course, there's going to have to be a tax sharing agreement between the federal and provincial governments. But in my view, uh, it's in the best interest of the country and therefore the federal and provincial governments to accommodate First Nations uh, to do that. And so when you think about, uh, you know, one of the reasons that First Nations do oppose, of course, uh, any developments within their traditional territories is that they don't get anything for it. Uh, the federal and provincial governments get all kinds of tax revenues and and benefits, uh, you know, and First Nations have basically been on the sidelines. And, and it's more striking now that uh, COVID is with us that we have to think uh, differently in terms of uh, the economy, in terms of uh, how First Nations fit into that uh, fiscal relationship. And so now is a time to begin to uh, rethink uh, how we will relate to one another with a new fiscal relationship. And in that way, I believe 
you would very quickly see uh, an uptick in uh, resource development uh, with First Nations uh, support. And you can see that happening with uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, discussions that you know, it's very clear that uh, First Nations will be a major player in that, as well as other uh, examples uh, related to the uh, uh, the First Nations major co- projects coalition. But that's not to mean that you know uh, that every resource project is going to get a green light. Uh, you know, individual First Nations are going to have to go through their own processes uh, within their own traditional and uh, treaty territories. Uh, to reach an accommodation. But, you know, from my point of view, uh, just having an impact benefit agreement isn't good enough. Uh, I think it's a, it's a stepping stone. It, it resolves some of the issue. Uh, but if we're ever going to take uh, uh, control of our destinies within uh, the Federation, uh, there has to be uh, a tax-sharing agreement. Uh, and that way we'll have fuller uh, self-determination and self-governance, uh, not only of over ourselves, but being a major contributor to the economic well-being of the country. So, when you say tax sharing agreement, you mean you're you're or when you say tax coordination, you are you implying that that other governments would would reduce their tax or recognize a First Nations tax? I, I think it's the same kind of, you know, dilemma that we had with uh, with real property tax. Uh, y- y- there's no way that you can have double taxation. Uh, so there's going to have to be some form of accommodation. And I think that will come in the, in the uh, uh, way of uh, the federal government offsetting uh, provincial governments vacating tax room to First Nations. And that, to me, is the easiest way uh, uh, to go about it. Uh, if if uh, the provincial government would vacate tax room, uh, there would be either be a, a tax credit or a, a vacating of, of the jurisdiction to First Nations, uh, and then we would be able to occupy it. And, and in that way, we, do, we would begin to uh, look, look after ourselves uh, uh, to a greater degree that's that's you know uh, uh, capable that we're capable of right now because we just don't have the kind of resources nor the tax credits that the federal and provincial governments have have got and that's clearly demonstrated uh, with covid-19 is that uh, we're completely dependent on somebody else whereas that isn't you know in in my view the the foundation of this country uh, the foundation of this country is based on three founding, uh, you know, peoples. Uh, it was originally the, the British, uh, the French, and the First Nations right across the country, and that would go a long ways uh, for reconciliation. You know, people are talking about reconciliation these days, but uh, the fundamental uh, reconciliation is really uh, uh, an economic one, and that's the kind of partnership we had right at the beginning uh, in, in, of, of the development of Canada and uh, the, the British and French colonies is that uh, those colonies couldn't have existed nor Canada could, have, could not have existed without First Nations uh, 
economic empowerment and the room that we shared with them. And that's the kind of accommodation we're going to have to go back to. Well, just on a personal note, I'd say that I wouldn't be here if the Mi'kmaq hadn't accommodated us on the east coast of Canada. Uh, there are several times where I think our survival depended upon them. <laughs> Yeah, but but that but but Greg, that that story is repeated over and over right across the country, and indeed throughout the Americas, uh, people wouldn't have been able to survive, you know, without uh, not only the economic wherewithal, but a lot of the foodstuffs, uh, a lot of the technologies we had, like like the canoe, the the snowshoe, uh, corn and beans and you know, pumpkins, all of those kinds of things uh, contributed to to uh, the development of this country. And, you know, even today, uh, here in Shushwap country, we still uh, refer to money as sklau, and sklau is uh, the beaver, uh, going right back to the, the early beaver trade. And so, uh, uh, you know, we were always an economic uh, powerhouse in the country and that's absolutely changed uh, because of uh, the complete dependence and and the root of the dependence of course and is in colonization and when you talk about this tax do you how would you deal with issues of overlapping claims that's something that comes up a lot with with government people i i i view an overlap uh, really it's a, a shared uh, territory and you know, one of the, the one of the things I, I often like to, to tell is the story about how Canada is a hundred percent owned by the federal government, and uh, the provincial governments layer their interests on top of that. So you've got an additional hundred percent claimed by provincial governments, and then on top of that, you've got all of these myriad of other interests. Uh, whether it be fee simple interests, rights of way, uh, you know, and the like. And so you're dealing with over 200% already. So any uh, time we talk about overlaps here in the province of British Columbia, uh, you know, it's about 100 and I guess it's about 130 uh, percentiles uh, that's claimed by, by, by First Nations here in B.C., I believe uh, very strongly that that's an internal issue that only First Nations themselves can resolve. And, you know, we've we've uh, continually shared our territories in and amongst ourselves for many, many years. And so it's incumbent on us to get together and uh, resolve it. Uh, one of the unfortunate circumstances that a lot of us have found here in BC is because of the BC treaty process. It's those that that end up uh, in the BC treaty process that excludes uh, other First Nations, and therefore you've got the rub. And then you know, on top of that, you've got uh, the because of the the long history of Indians and Indian bands. Uh, that doesn't facilitate true nation to nation relationships with uh, the federal and provincial governments. And so you've got, you know, individual communities uh, that can move towards uh, resolving a, a treaty issue uh, just amongst themselves as opposed to, uh, say, the Shushwab nation. And, you know, that's demonstrated right within 
uh, my nation itself, you've got uh, what I would consider the Northern Shushwap and the BC Treaty process, uh, the Southern Shushwap not involved in that process. And so there has to be uh, some type of accommodation. And again, it's only us as, as First Nations can resolve it. I don't think you know, as a last resort, was a resort. Of course, people are going to be, you know, uh, going to the courts. But to, in my view, that doesn't resolve it. It just uh, creates a bitterness that'll last uh, a multitude of generations into the future. So, the, this tax you speak of now, here, can I throw a, uh, a fact out at you? Financial Post says it takes Canada 15 years on average to get a mine approved, whereas it's six in Australia, um, six years. And I now I'm an economist, so I know that has enormous implications for the, for the, you know, for investment. You know, nobody in their right mind is going to want to wait around for 15 years when they can get a deal done in six. But do you see it? Oh yeah, and there was two, you know, two uh, reasons that the, the uh, mining industry says for this this delay, and one of them is, is uncertainty about environmental regulation, and the other was uncertainty about Aboriginal claims. Now, do you do you see any way of improving this? Uh, well, I think the, the fundamental way, in my view, of taking a step to resolving this is accommodating First Nations in in the development of the uh, of the mine. And they, we've demonstrated that here in, in the Kamloops uh, area with Skeechiston and Kamloops coming together and getting a third of the uh, tax revenue that the provincial government would formally take. And that's led to an in- incredible amount of development uh, within our, our communities as individuals uh, work at the mine uh, uh, funnily enough, they're paying a tax to the the federal and provincial governments, an income tax, because it's off reserve, and and again that demonstrates that there should be a a tax sharing uh, an ag- agreement uh, with the federal and provincial governments, given the amount of of economic development that's taken place that otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, the the other thing is that if if we're involved as First Nations in, in any uh, mining development. Uh, there's going to be, a, you know, a, a different standard uh, looking at, at the development that would ultimately take place uh, because of, you know, the, the, the spiritual connection to the land, but also a recognition uh, where there is going, where, where we will have an economic benefit uh, that would uh, certainly lead to an expedited process, but also ensuring that uh, you know you, you don't want to have a situation like the, the tailings pond uh, overflowing and and contaminating uh, spawning grounds or uh, fishing grounds and the like. So there's there's you know a, a higher standard in my view that First Nations would would bring to the table uh, looking at economic issues as well as environmental issues and that would uh, go a long ways to facilitate uh, greater uh, uh, development of mines and you know one of the the things that I looked at uh, uh, right across the country uh, is the situation in that was in Attawapiskat in northern uh, Ontario uh, they had a mining agreement with De Beers a diamond mine 
uh, for five, um, employing 500 people. But uh, because of the capacity, uh, you know, Attawapiskat couldn't uh, uh, even find uh, 500 people from their own community to work at the mine. And the the uh, impact benefit agreement, uh, you know, was is here and gone. Whereas if they had a greater share of the, the tax revenues, a, a, a greater uh, participation rate, if they had better uh, 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 training, uh, better preparedness uh, in terms of dealing and negotiating with, with De Beers, they would have been better off. And that's one of the things that through our experience through the uh, uh, major resource coalition that, that they would be able to, uh, you know, uh, be able to help out First Nation communities. And, and another situation in northern Ontario, of course, is the exploitation of the, of the Ring of Fire, which is, you know, untold billions of dollars uh, worth of, of precious uh, minerals in, in the Canadian North, in particular in Ontario. And again, uh, you know, given the remoteness, uh, given uh, that this is in, you know, Treaty 3 territory, uh, the Grand Chief uh, Elvin Fiddler, I believe, you know, who's fighting right now, uh, you know, and will be launching a court case uh, over uh, water and, and the fact that most of their communities are, have got a boil water advisory, don't have potable water. If they had a mechanism whereby they would be able to uh, get a, a tax share of the uh, resources that would go a long ways to building infrastructure within their communities, making viable communities that are economically sound, as opposed to uh, communities that are completely dependent on on the federal government and uh, indeed the provincial governments for uh, services. And so, in that particular case, also uh, in order to exploit that, and I and I got this experience through uh, one of the uh, boards that were related to BC Hydro. Uh, anytime you're going to be doing that kind of uh, resource development, you're going to need all kinds of different power, uh, whether it be hydropower, uh, road network, uh, and the like, uh, capital infrastructure. And so, uh, if you know, you, they they telegraph the areas that are going to be exploited, and in that particular situation, and in, in the the far north of Ontario, they're going to need a road, and uh, uh, the provincial government, I, I forget which uh, premier was asking the federal government for a billion dollars to build a road up north, but the First Nations said, well, that's only bringing you know, a road up to exploit the resources and back. We, w- we want a road uh, that, that traverses east and west is at the same time. And so if, if we're part of the problem, uh, I believe through uh, economic, um, you know, situations that facilitate true partnerships, uh, we would see that situation turn around. And one of the best examples, I, I guess, uh, is the Creenescapi with, uh, uh, it was originally the Great Whale Project in, in, in Quebec uh, under the leadership of Billy Diamond in the 1970s uh, that really saw uh, one of the first modern treaties in Canada with the Creenescapi 
and you know they right across uh, the same people uh, Atawapiskat and Matthew Kuncum's people uh, there's a world of difference you know they've one has got uh, very stable economies uh, lots of employment uh, you know lots of infrastructure uh, they own airlines uh, lots of businesses and yet on the other side uh, of the of the uh, provincial line you see greater dependence uh, more uh, problems socioeconomic problems within the community and so if Canada is really thinking about uh, reconciliation and dealing with systemic racism and dealing with all of the problems that are that are really uh, you know very difficult to even begin to have discussions with uh, with uh, the federation about uh, I think if they looked at economic solutions uh, we all benefit in the long term uh, particularly when First Nations begin to have the institutional capability to look after ourselves, uh, that means that you know somebody else doesn't have that responsibility. Because I always go back to the point that if we're dependent on somebody else to provide services to us, uh, the reason those services are limited ultimately is because of the liability that comes along with that responsibility. And so the more responsibility we take on, Yes, it means more liability, but at the same time, it means that we can prioritize, uh, uh, you know, our futures, our hopes, our aspirations ourselves, as opposed to uh, relying on someone else, which is the case right now. Wow, that's a lot to think about. Can I just go back to one of the first things you said? And you were talking about the uh, the personal income tax paid by uh, by the the. Uh, SSN workers employed at the mine here, which is off reserve. And so you're talking about sharing or uh, federal personal income tax or provincial, or is that unclear? I, I think it would have to be both. They both uh, benefit from uh, the, the First Nations that are paying the income tax within our traditional territory. I, I believe in that particular situation, it should be both the federal and provincial governments uh, sharing some of the tax room. Provincial tax room, uh, as it's related to the resource development and income tax, as well as, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the corporate tax that's available. Uh, both, I think both the levels of government should accommodate uh, uh, the Shushwap in that particular case. And what would you say about, say, uh, Nishka or Gitsan or somebody like that working in the in uh, traditional ancestral uh, shoe swap lands uh, well it's you know they're they're uh, they're they they would fall under uh, shoe swap jurisdiction in that particular that particular case just like if i worked up in nishka i would fall under nishka jurisdiction or gitsan or uh, you know witsowatin or haida or you know you, you name it cree uh, right across the country no, it's it's uh, we have to begin to recognize the diversity uh, within First Nations communities and really begin to to recognize First Nations jurisdiction. And when you begin to think like that, uh, of course, you have to look at, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional territories and not just pay lip service saying, you know, I 
I thank these folks for letting me have a meeting here. Well, it, it's, it has to mean more than just saying that. It means sharing in the resources that are exploited within our traditional and uh, treaty territories. So you see the duty to consult as, as having a, an economic dimension to it? Oh, absolutely. You know, the duty to consult uh, has its roots uh, in that very issue. Uh, the reason it arose is because you're dealing with uh, Shushwap territory or Nishka territory or Haida territory or Cree or uh, Maliseet uh, or Mi'kmaq, whatever the case may be. And uh, once you, you recognize that you have a duty to consult with those people from that traditional t- territory, uh, you know, that, that uh, brings in you know, all of those uh, legal responsibilities. But uh, the fundamental, really, uh, in my view, is is the economic component. Uh, Because you can have all the the great discussions in the world, but if there's no economic benefit, then why why even begin to have those discussions? I think one of the court decisions said that it was more than just note-taking. I think was the way they put it. Um, I do know, I, I think it's the Premier of New Brunswick has said that he would like to see the, the, consult, the consultation requirements laid out more in a more transparent way. I don't know how you feel about that or what exactly he was getting at other than he wasn't sure who he was supposed to consult with. I mean, do you think there's any potential for that? Well, I think uh, given the last uh, court case on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, we've got uh, probably the the uh, by and large most of the rule book uh, established uh, the 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 missing components I see in that that particular court case still is is the jurisdictional aspect uh, the the court case uh, looked at you know not only the duty to consult but an accommodation but it didn't mean that the federal and provincial government would actually give up. Uh, tax room, which is fundamental to uh, further developments, and so I I think that's that's one uh, missing aspect of of the duty to consult is and is making sure that we have jurisdiction, and uh, jur- you know recognition of jurisdiction doesn't mean that that uh, uh, no developments would ever take place. Uh, you know the reasons that. Uh, the resource development takes place uh, to begin with is a lot of it's for economic reasons, whether it be for, you know, the, the development of, of copper so that we can have electricity and, and uh, uh, you know, cell phones and the like. And, and you know, so we all have a, an economic stake in the development of the land. And the more uh, we're a part of it as First Nations, uh, the greater... Uh, developments will take place and the greater uh, the amount of revenues that Canada and the provincial governments and therefore First Nations uh, would would realize. So that's come through loud and clear that you really think that the solution really hinges on, on getting First Nations a formal share of the, of the tax revenues generated from resource projects, which is a, a big step for most yeah, and, and we have to be a fund of, you know, if we're going to be looked at as uh, one of the founding partners in, in the, this federation, that has to be uh, incorporated. And, you know, it isn't like all of this money is going to be going to uh, offshore 
the Caribbean or to a Swiss bank. This is going to go right back into the economy. And so uh, we're all winners uh, when that happens. Uh, this whole notion that, that we shouldn't be involved and, and that we're a hindrance uh, uh, only leads and, and creates uh, greater problems down the road. And you can see it, uh, you know, and, and, and I also am a strong believer in institutional support as well. A lot of these developments in the future will not take place unless there's strong national uh, First Nation institutions that, that can bring to bear uh, standards, regulations, and uh, negotiations on a national basis to facilitate uh, local agreements. Uh, so I think that's a very fundamental part of the, of the future. So do you see institutional support with, with helping First Nations across the country laying out their, their expectations from like environmental assessments and consultation processes? Well, I think that's that's one of the things that we've experienced through the major pro projects coalition, where they would be able to come in and help communities uh, be better prepared for negotiations to begin to think about, you know, the 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 kinds of structures that are going to have to be in place to facilitate the development, uh, but also. Uh, you know, one of the missing components there is making sure that we have adequate training so that we can take advantage of, of mining. You know, when you look at mining in and of itself, you've got lots of different uh, uh, trades training that has to take place uh, so that we can take advantage of all of the myriad uh, jobs that are available. And they're fleeting. You know, it, a mine is, you know, maybe a generation, uh, but the startup, there's a startup phase, there's the ongoing, uh, you know, the, the, the life of the mine, and then there would be the downturn in the mine. And so uh, a lot of those, I don't think, can be handled by one individual community if there was a national uh, body. And there are uh, a few uh, that helps facilitate some of the mining aspects. But uh, uh, from a government perspective, you need government uh, institutions to facilitate it uh, so that it isn't just, you know, uh, building up uh, the expertise and then, then uh, you know, uh, uh, if one individual t decides to leave the, uh, the corporation or the, uh, uh, the facilitator, then that, that process uh, or prospects end. Uh, that's why I'm a strong believer in having a legislative uh, uh, institutions to facilitate it because that gives uh, a lot of uh, uh, longevity to uh, these uh, processes. First Nation communities, uh, you know, they, they want opportunities. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, quite a while ago with, through uh, the Shushwap Cultural Education Society, we started to uh, work on uh, trades training and one of the biggest opponents we had, uh, you know, funnily enough, at that time were, were trade unions who basically stepped in and said and told uh, the, the provincial government at that time, then, you know, we couldn't get their support uh, because we weren't aiming uh, those job uh, opportunities uh, within uh, uh, unions. And, you know, that's, that was very short-sighted. Uh, I think, from the union perspective, uh, you know, mind you, we have to be able to work with unions, but at the same time, 
uh, we have to get people trained so that they can be uh, part and parcel of, of any any resource development uh, and uh, being able to take advantage of it is to have proper training. And that goes right back to proper education. So education, uh, you know, is completely, is, it, you know, all of these are, are separate issues that have to be dealt with, but they're all intertwined, you know, without uh, proper funding for, for education. And given, you know, the situation of our students having to go back uh, to public, public schools uh, uh, later on this fall with COVID-19, that that's going to stretch a lot of the limited resources that First Nation schools of uh, are, which are already limited in the amount of funding that they get uh, to a greater degree. And, you know, without a strong basis of education, particularly in the sciences and math, uh, we're going to be limiting ourselves in the future. So we have to be able to look at education to the highest and best use uh, so that we get, uh, you know, young people uh, trained in education early on, but at the same time being able to make uh, career decisions uh, as they're moving through not only the public school system, but also through uh, our uh, First Nation-led uh, institutions as well. When you were talking about, about the three founding peoples, and I just kept thinking about this, this foundational infrastructure, like the railway that came to BC, the Trans-Canada Highway, and we've been hearing a little bit about that. I think the Premier of New Brunswick was talking about a national infrastructure corridor that would move resources coast to coast. And, and of course, that's that going to run into a whole lot of issues. Like I know that the Premier of Quebec doesn't want pipelines crossing Quebec. Oh, I'm not, I have a feeling they get, they, they, I have a feeling they do get their, their, uh, their oil and gas delivered by a pipeline from the East Coast. But, but um, what do you think of that concept? Do you think that's, there's actually potential for that? Or is that going to run into just, are there just too many different First Nation issues, the Treaty First Nations, titled First Nations, the nature of outstanding claims, etc.? I, I, I think that you've got to have that kind of level of discussion in this country. Uh, there has to be a recognition that First Nations, uh, if we're not at the table, uh, you know, uh, having those discussions where where those issues are being discussed by the by the federal and provincial governments, it's a disservice uh, to not have us involved. Uh, you outlined a, a number of the the political problems that the that the governments right across the country are going to have to grapple with, and that's you know the foundational issues uh, that go right back to uh, you know. Uh, the, the authority of the, the federal government, uh, the jurisdictions of the provincial governments, and always left out of that equation is, is where we fit as First Nations within that dialogue. And I think that we have just as, you know, every right as the federal and provincial governments to have our voices heard uh, over those issues. I think that getting uh, resources to to market is is incredibly important when you look at uh, the landlocked uh, uh, resources, particularly you know oil and gas that are in the in the north eastern part of British Columbia and 
and uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, you know, they, they we need to find markets for them. And uh, so the, the tough issues are going to have to be grappled with. And that's only going to take place when, when you have the dialogue and when you start uh, looking at the concepts uh, such as, uh, uh, you know, an energy corridor. Uh, you know, those, you, it isn't just, you know, for energy, you're looking at a whole bunch of movement. Uh, one of the ones that uh, ultimately could be talked about is going up to the Hudson's Bay, uh, given, you know, the year-round traffic that could flow from, say, Churchill or one of those locations on, on the Hudson's Bay. So there's a, when, when you're dealing with a country that's diverse as Canada, uh, you can't limit uh, your imagination. You have to begin to to imagine how goods would flow, and that's how the 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 railway was ultimately built. Uh, the, it was built not only to accommodate British Columbia's en entree into the Canada, but it also had you know lots of economic uh, potential that's been borne out in. And uh, same with the Trans-Canada Highways. You've got to have good uh, net highway networks, uh, railway networks. And in those days, of course, uh, you know, we were considered. Uh, that's why, you know, with the C CP rail, you've got, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, oh, the, the Railway Act uh, and so on, 10 miles on each side, First Nations are are impacted differently uh, that's you know all of those all of those questions have to be addressed and uh, it's going to take some some time but if you know if you give uh, that time uh, it 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 can come to fruition it sounds sounds like the place to start imagining is to imagine first nations that have get some of the tax revenue generated by these projects Oh well, absolutely, yeah. That's that's a fundamental part, uh, and the reason I always come back to tax is because you can you can go to the bank with that. You can go to the banks. You can go to the international marketplace, because you've got the potential for tax revenue, and when you do that, you can lever that uh, to build greater infrastructure, which leads to more and more economic development and growth. Uh, which benefits uh, the overall economy and the, our standing as a country and in the economic uh, well-being uh, globally as well. Have you had talks with any of the premiers or about any of these concepts? The discussions that we've had primarily have been in New Brunswick and in Manitoba. And... Uh, you know, the focus, of course, uh, just up until COVID was trying to get uh, the Manitoba government to begin to move. And one of the areas that we were looking at uh, uh, quite seriously in Manitoba was developing a mining uh, tax uh, sharing agreement uh, between the Manitoba government and the, and the First Nations there to facilitate uh, greater mining uh, exploration and, and development. Uh, but a critical component of that would ultimately would would involve uh, the, the the federal government. Do you want to, Should we talk a little bit about the different the difference between a business equity stake and business involvement as a business and involvement as a government? Yeah, I I think that I think that one of the things that I think about that issue is that 
you know, you've got to make up your mind uh, early on whether or not you want to be a corporation or a government. And that's fundamental on how you approach a lot of different uh, issues. And from my perspective, First Nations have to look at ourselves as a government as opposed to a corporation. And one of the things that uh, I see happening, uh, you know, is uh, because of uh, a lot of the loophole economies, we've tended to look at uh, corporations as, as the be-all, uh, not, not realizing that a lot of the powers that, uh, that corporations have got are, are granted by, by government. And so if we approach a lot of these uh, issues as a, as a government, that'll facilitate uh, greater uh, uh, economic development, from my opinion. You know, and, and you know, when, you, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the examples I've seen uh, where First Nations or tribes or, or others have, have developed a, uh, uh, a corporate approach, uh, you know, with, with the COVID uh, shutdown of the economy, that's really uh, affected those communities that have just got a, a corporate outlook. Uh, it's, it's meant that, uh, you know, all of their uh, or a good portion of their revenues have really been shut off, whether it be casinos, whether it be, uh, you know, a lot of the other sales that, uh, that normally take place as, uh, through your, your corporate uh, structures. And y you could see it with the tribes in the United States. Uh, uh, once uh, COVID happened, their casinos shut down. And that was the the major ticket item in the, in a lot of the communities, and and we saw that happening in in New Zealand with one of our guests, uh, uh, Tamari, uh, which we'll revisit with him at a future podcast. Uh, you know, and so I I'm a strong believer in in government. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it it sets uh, legislative parameters as opposed to. Uh, uh, just corporate structures, and it allows our our uh, councils to operate as as governments as opposed to uh, paper tigers. You could just explain what you mean by loophole economy. I'm not, I mean, I, I I'm not sure most people know are familiar with that term. Yeah, well, loophole economies basically are have taken place because uh, those were the only. Uh, economies that were open to First Nations. And they basically, you know, casinos, uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of that happened in the, started happening in the United States uh, because it was one area that, that, that the tribes in the United States thought that they could take advantage of uh, using their, their inherent or tribal jurisdiction to facilitate. It started out with bingos. And then ultimately led to the situation where, where we've got today where there was an establishment of a, a national gaming um, institute and uh, uh, led to compacting, which is really tax sharing agreements between the tribe and uh, the state governments. And that's a, really a recognition of, of, of uh, state uh, authority and, and jurisdiction, but also of the tribes. But that leads to, you know, roughly half or 50% uh, uh, of the revenues uh, 
being turned over to to the state. So that's one example. Another one, uh, you know, that's uh, prevalent is uh, tobacco, the tobacco trade uh, on a national basis. Uh, this is, you know, it's a, a lot of other governments tend to look at these areas as gray markets uh, where there isn't the clear explicit jurisdiction, but it's one that that uh, First Nations have been able to take advantage of. Uh, and, and that, you know, I, I want to move to to having explicit uh, jurisdiction so that it's very clear where our role as a government fits in in the in those uh, economies, uh, because it just uh, it tends to make uh, our entrepreneurs uh, not part of uh, uh, you know the the le- so-called legitimate uh, uh, economy, and so you can't deal with banks and a lot of other situations uh, just because it's a, in the uh, considered in the gray market. Well, cannabis is another example of it. I was going to say they were able to move in because like the state jurisdiction, maybe they had a prohibition, didn't apply on, on tribal lands in the case of the casinos, hence the name loophole. Do you think we need a formal training institute to help improve First Nations of employment and major resource projects? Or can we work through existing agencies? I, I think that that will be facilitated through the Major Projects Coalition, and I'm hoping that uh, through the development of the uh, First Nations Infrastructure Institute, we'll be able to, as one of its components, be being able to uh, train uh, uh, individuals to, to have a myriad of different uh, skill sets to take advantage of uh, economic opportunities as they arise. Because I think a lot of people don't realize how specialized and how mobile some of the skill sets in some of these different projects actually are. So you can train a person, but it only makes sense to do so if they're able to move from project to project to project because they're in specific phases of development, etc., which makes it difficult when you're dealing with like a single First Nation. Yeah, that's true for certain segments, but others like water, you know, having trained uh, uh, personnel to manage water systems, yes, you can, you know, if you have a standard, you can... Uh, you can have that standard apply on a national basis, and so one set of of skills can apply on a on a myriad of different communities right across the the communities uh, right across the country, I should say. And so, you know, when you have a, a standardized uh, skill set, yes, it is migratory, uh, but you can take advantage of a lot of different uh, scenarios if if you've got that uh, skill set. Uh, whether it be here in Kamloops or in, uh, you know, you pick the community right across the country. And I think that's critically important that we have uh, people trained in a whole bunch of different uh, uh, skills uh, so that we can take advantage of different uh, opportunities. And and you're right, though, when you think about mining, uh, given, you know, the, the, the startup phase, uh, the you know the development phase and then the then the uh, shutting down phase which you know they, they tend to last for many many years uh, they they require different types of skill sets and but at the same time one of the things that we you know I've been advocating is that uh, with the development of our imaginations uh, we're only hampered by 
the limitations that that we bring to our imagination. And uh, once we have institutional capability, it allows us to to free our imaginations. And and as economies change, uh, we're able to influence uh, the different training models, the different types of education that are going to be required, and the different technologies. But fundamental to that is is uh, our imagination, and therefore our, our you know the fundamental power we've got is our is our brains and uh, uh, what we can think and what we can do uh, and right now you know the limitations that that are confronting us is because of uh, you know we're always having to put out brush fires we don't have enough education dollars we don't have enough funding to build a school we don't have this we don't have that and that's because of the complete dependence on somebody else Whereas if we're a fundamental part of the economy, yes, there are going to be different steps that we're going to have to, to take uh, to, to do the developments that we, we hope to take advantage of. But we're in a position to, to be able to do it if we have the legislative basis. That makes sense to me, I must say. Well, thanks a lot, Greg. Yeah. And I oh.